Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. They have heard that there's power in the name of Jesus, and Paul's doing some pretty incredible things. And so the idea is that these are people who are going around trying to profit, making money off of exorcisms. That they're going around, casting out demons from people, and they must have had some limited success for some period of time. But when they start to use the name of Jesus without having a relationship with him, It's ineffective. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the book of Acts. There is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved except for the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of all. In today's message, Pastor Gary teaches that while simply saying Jesus can make the demons flee, Scripture also warns to never use God's Son's name as a good luck charm. You must have a relationship with Christ to actively participate in kingdom work. Those that do not heed his warning can and will be overwhelmed by the enemy. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for today's message from the book of Acts, chapter 19. Paul here is instructing them, okay, that's great. That was a baptism of repentance. But John was pointing towards Messiah. And so verse 5 says, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So this is the second baptism. This is the baptism of Jesus. This is post-salvation baptism by water in identification with Messiah. Now this is what we still practice today. This is water baptism. This is when, now that... Now that Christ has finished his work on the cross, when a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus and they get saved, all right, after that, the Bible instructs us that we should be baptized to identify our lives with the finished work of Christ. Baptism is not required for salvation. The moment you add anything to the free gift of grace through faith in Jesus who died on the cross, you've made it a works-oriented system. Baptism is not required for salvation, but we should be baptized out of obedience. Because Jesus told us, his mandate, the Great Commission, go into all the world, teaching the good news. 
and, and making disciples of, of all men, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. So we should be baptized in obedience to the Lord because we want to identify our lives with the finished work of Christ. And going under the water identifies us with the death of Christ. Coming up out of the water identifies us with the resurrection of Christ that we want to live a new life to the glory of God too. So we still practice water baptism. And I'd encourage you, be baptized if you haven't been baptized. Now, you know, I don't know what your tradition is. See, my tradition, growing up in the Methodist church, was that we, we sprinkled, all right? And we sprinkled when you were an infant. And infant baptism is practiced in many churches. Uh, but when I realized growing up that there's really not a scriptural basis for infant baptism, one can make the argument like in the household of Cornelius in Acts 10 that his whole family was baptized and maybe that included you know, little baby. I, I don't know. All I know is what the Bible teaches concerning water baptism is that anyone at an age of understanding what this is about can make a decision to trust Christ as their Savior and then to be baptized as a demonstration of their relationship with Christ. So as I started to grow up and realize I was sprinkled as a baby, but I never made a, I was never baptized as a profession of my faith in Christ. I wasn't baptized till I was like 21. So, you know, I don't know what your tradition is, or I don't know if you've ever been baptized, but you might want to consider it. We do baptisms here at Cornerstone about every three months or so. We go down to Idalese, so that might be something for you to consider. But anyway, these are two baptisms happening here in the first seven verses. But then, it tells us in verse 6, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, or upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So that's the third baptism. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word baptism is not used concerning the, the Holy Spirit in this verse, but it is the same thing happening in Acts 1, uh, verse 5, when Jesus talks about it, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So baptism, the word in the Greek is baptizo. It just means to be overwhelmed. So it is to be overwhelmed either by water in the case of water baptism, or to be overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit in the case of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice with me that in this particular example, it does say Paul placed his hands on them. Okay, notice. Paul placed his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them. However, in Acts 10, when Peter was preaching to the household of Cornelius, he did not lay his hands on them. And yet the Holy Spirit came on them. I also want you to notice that it tells us in verse 6 that they, in this, in this case, spoke in tongues and prophesied. But in Acts 8, when the people of Samaria believed and were baptized with the Holy Spirit, there's no reference to them speaking in tongues. And I just simply point this out because we have to be very careful not to make a formula out, out of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, it has to be laying on of hands. No, not every example is laying on of hands. We see the, the Holy Spirit coming on people. Well, it has to be speaking in tongues. Not every example was speaking in tongues, but God can still give that gift to people. Well, it has to be this. It has to be that. No, we just, you know, you might be surprised by the Spirit. You know? So don't try to make a formula out of it. Just be open to the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's happening here. They spoke in tongues. Tongues is a language unknown to the person speaking, but it is an otherwise known language somewhere. It is, for some, a kind of a scary gift. If maybe some of your church backgrounds, you're, you're a little reluctant to you know, embrace the whole idea of, of the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy. 
But God has done a wonderful thing with language. And yet language is at the same time a wonderful tool. It is also a very restrictive thing. And if you've ever tried to express yourself and gotten frustrated because you didn't have the right words, you were trying to express yourself and you just couldn't make it all sound intelligible, then you know how language can sometimes be a tricky thing. Um, We all think in our own language, whatever our native tongue is. If I were to ask you, what language will it be in heaven? What's your first thought? Your native tongue. I remember being in Honduras on a mission trip with our church and watching these people yelling at their dog in Spanish. And my first thought was, that dog doesn't know Spanish. <laughs> that was my first thought. So language is a, it's a tricky thing. I have to actually stop and realize that dog understands Spanish. In fact, that dog doesn't understand English. If I were to say something, that dog wouldn't understand a thing. But because language can also be restrictive because we can only communicate in as much as we have words to express ourselves, God in in giving the gift of tongues gives the ability for people who might receive that particular gift to be able to bypass the restriction of language and communicate directly to the Lord Tongues is a gift of prayer and praise to God uh, in a language that you yourself don't understand. It's always foreign to the one speaking, but it is also a known language somewhere. Uh, Maybe it's even a heavenly language. Remember in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a, a, a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong, just making noise. So... It is a particular gift that God can still give. And then the gift of prophecy is the... Sometimes we think of it only as the foretelling of God's Word, but uh, it is even much more than that. It is the foretelling of God's Word. So, you know, here they are uh, praising the Lord in a language that they don't understand. Um, They're just connecting with the heart of God, uh, and they're prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. So, again, you know, the the book of Acts is... um, It's called the Acts of the Apostles, but it really is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And so this whole book is is rich with information concerning about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That was was vital to the early church and and still vital to us today. So let's carry on in the text. Verse 8, it says that Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. That was always his approach. He'd go to, if there was a Jewish synagogue in town, that's where he'd go first, first to the Jews. So there is one. He goes there, speaks boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Notice that capital W, the way. That word is used six times in the book of Acts. This is the second time it is used in the book of Acts. And it is a reference to Christianity. It is picking up this name called the way. Uh, And of course, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So followers of Christ were known as the way, people of the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews, notice this, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. All of them. They had the chance. They heard it. Paul was faithful to teach the word of God. Verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. 
so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Very fascinating passage here. Uh, God did extraordinary miracles, NIV says. New King James says God did unusual miracles through Paul. Uh, and and that, that word unusual or extraordinary indicates that this was not typical. You, you don't see this happening typically in other places in the New Testament, but it was certainly happening here. Handkerchiefs literally is, can be translated leather headbands. You know, Paul was a worker, uh, he was a tent maker, and this is the idea that, you know, probably he was using a leather headband, like a sweatband, uh, in his craft. And it could be, you know, that, that because he would take off these leather headbands, these handkerchiefs, um, then, then they were used here. And in addition, aprons that had touched him, taken to the sick, the illnesses were cured, the evil, evil spirits left them. So the only thing we have to be careful of here is that it's not the handkerchiefs and it's not the aprons that have the power. Because in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, remember the woman with the issue of blood. She'd been bleeding for 12 years. Jesus was making his way through Capernaum. The Bible says that this woman reached out just, just in the crowd, just wanting to be, you know, unnoticed. And the Bible says she reaches out and she touches the hem of his garment because she thinks if I just touch the hem of his garment, I will be cured. Jesus stops immediately and he says, who touched me? Now, there's a whole crowd pressing against him. So his disciples are like, what do you, what do you mean who touched you? I mean, there, you know, there's a crowd of people pressing up against you. Probably some of them are trying to pick your pockets. I mean, just look around. And he says, no, I perceive that power, or King James, he says, I perceive that virtue has gone forth from me. And when then the crowd kind of separates, and this woman, this dear woman, frail as she is, left, left there all alone, she then admits she was the one who touched him. And Jesus says, go, thy faith has made thee well. Not my cloak. It was your faith. So there's nothing magical about the handkerchiefs here or the aprons. What simply happens is that people sometimes, if you will, need a little jump start to their faith. And there are some, sometimes, now, now please be careful with this, okay? Don't make icons out of things. Don't make statues or idols out of anything. You know, so it, I, I cringe when I see TV evangelists selling, selling their own little pieces of cloth and stuff. But at the same token, the idea here is that sometimes tangible things help to just jumpstart our faith. And for some of these people, they were like, wow, the Apostle Paul and God used them in such a wonderful way. This is his handkerchief. Okay. And so this is an extraordinary or unusual thing. We don't see it as a pattern. Okay. So be careful about, you know, all that kind of superstitious thing about items. Okay. The healing virtue is the Lord. It is not any little sacred trinket or good luck charm or little rabbit's foot on the end of a keychain. All right? This is all the Lord, but this is an unusual thing that happened here. Uh, and people were cured. Evil spirits left them. And God did this unusual thing here uh, for the sake of these people. Now, verse 13. This gets into the demon part. So, verse 13. So some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke, notice, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, Sceva was a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. 
And one day the evil spirit answered them. <laughs> that would be a trip, wouldn't it? <laughs> Jesus, I know. And okay, no, I won't do that. Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Okay, that's it. So, you know, put on the best demon voice because that's the demon speaking here. Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the home naked and bleeding. All right, not a happy scene here. But the reason it's not a happy scene is because people are going around using the name of Jesus like it's a magic wand. These are Jews who went around driving out evil spirits. King James says these are vagabond Jews. It literally translates, these were strolling exorcists. That's what it literally means. Now, these people are not believers, but they have heard that there's power in the name of Jesus, and Paul's doing some pretty incredible things. And so the idea is that these are people who are going around trying to profit, making money off of exorcisms. That they're going around casting out demons from people, and they must have had some limited success for some period of time. But when they start to use the name of Jesus without having a relationship with him, it's ineffective. And the demon speaks to these guys, these seven sons of Sceva. Sceva's a, a chief priest here, so these are his sons here. So, you know, here's some preacher's kids here. You know, they're not, they're not really getting it, right? And so they're going around just invoking the name of Jesus, and the demon speaks. Jesus I know. And by the way, that's the Greek word gnosko. It means knowledge in the abstract sense. Epigonosko means knowledge by experience. These demons don't have any relationship with Jesus. They know of Jesus in the abstract. They understand that he exists and who he is. They don't have any kind of relationship with him, okay? They say, Jesus I know and I know about Paul. It's another Greek word epistemei, meaning acquainted with Paul. But who are you? And the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them because when somebody is under demonic power, they do have superhuman strength. They do have a strength that is beyond what their natural strength would be. And um, I have only seen it once, and I, that's one time enough in a lifetime. But it's a, it's, it's a, a, a terrible thing, but it's a real thing. And um, so this guy who was possessed by this demon jumps on them, overpowered them all, gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So not, not a pretty scene at all. But, you know, the takeaway there is, look, you, you can't just go around using the name of Jesus. You, you have to know him, epigonosco. You have to have a, a knowledge of him by experience to be able to, with any measure of authority, use the name of Jesus. Um, he's, he's not just a it's not just a magic formula or um, waving a magic wand. This is, this is the name of Jesus. This demon's like, you know, I'm familiar with these, but I'm not familiar with you. We have to know him in a personal way to effectually have the power of the Lord in our own lives. Well, verse 17, God's going to use this, though. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds, a number who had practiced sorcery, this is witchcraft, demonic kinds of things, brought their Harry Potter books, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. That, 
sorry, brought their Twilight DVD. I'm sorry, I just brought, brought their scrolls together. Did I say that out loud? And burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. A drachma was a day's wage. 50,000 of those. It was worth about $10 million in today's standard. Of all this kind of sorcery and demonic and divination. Now, you know, I, I, I joke about Harry Potter and the old Twilight series things. But I've, I've said on a few occasions that I think we need to be wise about that kind of thing. J.K. Rowling, who's made a boatload of money off of the Harry Potter series, has said publicly that her main ambition in writing the series was to promote death. And I know that we get very enamored by the special effects and Hollywood stuff. But again, we have to be very wise and discerning about how all that kind of sorcery and divination and demonic stuff is made to look just kind of, um, you know, cool and interesting and special effects and Hollywood, this kind of thing. So we have to be uh, very careful about it. Stephanie Meyer, who wrote the, the whole Twilight series of movies that came from her, uh, Stephanie Meyer is a Mormon. Okay, you have to understand her background in writing that whole series, which has a lot of vampirish, demonic kinds of other spiritual elements to it. Um, she's a Mormon. Mormonism is based on a faith that, that Joseph Smith had an encounter with an angel called Moroni who convinced him that Christians did not have all the truth. And that he had special revelation in the golden tablets that have never been seen uh, since his personal revelation. The Book of Mormon came out of it. Galatians 1.8, Paul says, If you believe a gospel other than what we have preached, even if an angel preaches it to you, let him be eternally condemned. So Mormonism is based on a demonic revelation. You have Stephanie Meyer, who is a Mormon, and then who writes about how the whole inspiration of the Twilight series came to be through her through nighttime dreams. And she even speaks about, this is on her own website, you can go check it out. She even speaks about how she couldn't stop the literal voices from giving her all the storylines. She would keep a pen and paper by her desk and write in a trance in the middle of the night. She talks about how she would wake up in the morning to see what she had written. That's how all of that was inspired. So what, what sometimes is passed off as, this is just kind of cool and nifty and, and young men turning into werewolves and all this kind of stuff and young love and all this kind of and alien things that are happening and we just get all fascinated. You, ha- you have to be careful because we've really polished it up and we've scrubbed it to look really fancy and nifty and extra special effects and all this kind of cool stuff that has actually just kind of glamorized the demonic. They hear, when they come into a relationship with Christ realize we got some sorcery we got some demonology stuff we've got some divination we got some witchcraft things we need to get rid of this stuff and they take all their books I'm just using modern vernacular all their DVDs all their stuff all their Ouija boards all this stuff and all and all of this and they just burn it and it comes to 10 in street value today 10 million dollars what are we holding on to that is a hindrance to our walk with Christ that maybe we need to get rid of. It says in verse 21 that after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I had been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. I don't want to get into this last section because... We're right at the the end of our time, but this whole riot in Ephesus happens over the temple of Diana and all that is going on in regards to the gospel and how that is now a conflict in Ephesus because people love Diana more than they do 
the gospel, at least there's a bunch who are furious about what Paul is doing. There's much more to glean from the pages of Acts and the history of the early church, but we'll pause our journey through it for today. Join us next time as Pastor Gary continues to share the, the power of the Holy Spirit with us. If you'd like to learn more about Cornerstone Connection, Pastor Gary, or the church these messages originate from, we encourage you to visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. Browse through our archive of previous messages while you're there. And feel free to share them with friends and family. Download our mobile app as well to keep God's Word with you as you go about your daily activities. Pastor Gary has also made available a study guide to accompany his series in Acts. You can find this digital booklet in companion resources under the Teachings tab. Do you live in the Leesburg area or will you be visiting in the near future? If so, we'd like to extend an invitation to join us for our weekly gatherings. We meet each Sunday and Wednesday to spend time in prayer and worship and studying the Bible. Visit cornerstoneconnection.cc for service times, more information, and directions. If you can't join us in person, don't worry. We live stream our services. Just click the link under the teachings tab. Thanks for joining us today. And be sure to tune in again for another edition of Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul. That you've got no place to go. But still you know. You're not a We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525.